worth of sermons to preach right now. And something may have occurred to you as you're driving down the road this week and thought, aha, I'd like to learn a little bit more about that. Hand me a note on your way out of church. Tell me what it was on your way out of church. Shoot me an email, text message, whatever it is, and we'll see if we can't tackle it. Um, uh, today, we're going to take a look at the promises of God. I had somebody a couple weeks ago, after I launched this, or let people know about this series, said, tell me about the promises of God. Like, what are the promises of God? Um, how, do we, how do we know whether or not God's going to fulfill those? And so that's what I want to talk about today. Um, are the promises of God. And so I want to approach this, uh, rather than listing off all the promises of God, because be quite honest with you, that would be a very disjointed sermon, because it would cover a broad amount of subjects. And so rather than do that, what I want to do is I want to look at one promise that God makes that really is kind of the catch-all promise that covers all the rest of the promises that God gives us. And I, would con- I think of it as the second greatest promise that God makes us. You say, the second greatest? Well, what's the first greatest? Well, the first greatest comes to us from John chapter 3, verse 16. You know this verse. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life, everlasting life. And so the promise is that God gives us there is eternal life. And the way that we get that promise, there's a condition to receiving it. The condition is you have to believe in Jesus. You have to believe in the work that Jesus did on the cross plus nothing that you bring to the table. Your good works, your church attendance, nothing that you do is going to allow God or cause God to want to accept you or cause God to want to give his favor to you. The only thing that's going to give God's favor to you, the only thing that's going to forgive you of your sins is the work that Jesus did on the cross and you putting your faith and your trust in that work. And that's the great promise that God gives us. And so if you're here this morning and you've never made a decision for Jesus before, I want to encourage you that God gives you a wonderful promise that you can have eternal life. You can have life in heaven forever and ever and ever, but you have to meet the condition to receive that promise. Now, the second great promise that God gives us, and that's where we want to turn our attention to today, is this catch-all promise. I think it's the second greatest promise. Some of you may disagree, but that's okay. Um, And it comes to us from Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip over there, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And as is our custom, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. Let's stand to our feet. And let's read Romans chapter 8, verse 28, 29, and 30. Okay, here we go. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. You may be seated. Thank you very much. Now, you heard that word predestined in there. Don't get too excited because we're actually going to tackle that. It was one of the questions somebody gave me in a couple of weeks, so we'll get to that. But what I want to do is I want to take a look at this promise that God gives us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that God works through all things for the good of those who love him. I want to break that verse down, break that promise that God gives us down into five different segments. The first of those segments is who is this promise being made to? Who are the recipients of this promise that God gives us? Well, he says there, uh, Romans 8, 28 says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called. So the who are the people who have been called. You say, well, give me a little bit more specifics. Well, the Bible gives us more specifics. Look at verse 29. It says, who for those God foreknew, he also predestined. Again, don't get too concerned about that. We'll get to it in a couple weeks. To be conformed to the likeness of his son, 
For those he, God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Sorry, reading that again. Verse 30. And those he predestined, he also, here's our word, those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. So who are the called? Who are the recipients of this promise? Well, it's those whom God has justified. It is the believers. It is the people who have believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, who are going to inherit eternal life in heaven. And so let's go back to our thing here. Who are the recipients of the promise? It is the called. And who are the called? Well, it's the justified. I know I'm being all technical here this morning, but the, the justified are the people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. My point in saying this is, the promise that God gives here, that all things work together for the good of those who love him, is not for Buddhists. God didn't make this promise for Hindus. He didn't make this promise for Muslims. He didn't make this promise for secularists. He didn't make this promise for Jehovah's Witnesses. He didn't make this promise for Mormons. God made this promise for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus and have a real and personal relationship with him. That's who this promise is for. And if you are one of those people, then this promise is for you. Now, the second truth about this promise the second segment that I want to point to is, the, is that the extent of this promise relates to all things. Look at that, 28. It says, and those, I'm reading verse 30. It says, for, for God, I'm starting to read quotes uh, 316. Anyway, it's not on the screen back there. Throw it up, uh, 828 on the screen. It says, the extent is to all things, that God works through all things. Not that God works through some things. Not that God works through many things. Not that God works through a lot of things, but not all things. The verse said God works through all things. The good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, God works through all of it. And then what did God do? Look at the second part of this, or third part of this. God says that he will cause all these things to work together for the good of the owners of this promise, for the recipients of this promise. Now, God's not trying to convince you and I that all things are good. That's not what that verse is saying. Not at all what that verse is saying. Uh, bankruptcy, not good. Cancer, not good. Uh, sickness, not good. Car accidents, not good. Uh, family problems, death of a loved one, children in rebellion, disabilities, infertility, all these things, they're not good. Uh, God's not tr trying to convince us that all things are good. That's not what this verse is saying. God is saying, rather, that he will take the good, the bad, the ugly, he will take all things and then he will blend them together, and in concert with one another, God will reproduce on the backside something that is good, something that is a blessing into your life. That God will take the good, the bad, and the ugly, all the ingredients, and he'll work through that for something that's beneficial for you and I. Now, this is I like to think of this a lot like baking a cake, okay? You got all these ingredients to bake a cake. Everybody likes cake, right? Y'all like cake, right? Maybe, most of y'all. Um, so, but would you sit down and eat a bag of flour? No. Would you drink a bottle of canola oil? No. Would you eat a bunch of raw eggs? I had a buddy in college that used to do that. Every morning, crack them over a glass, watch too many Rocky movies. And one morning, he got violently sick as a result of eating a bunch of raw eggs, right? You would not do that with these ingredients. But when you blend all these ingredients together, some of them are quite ugh, right? But when you blend all these ingredients together, God says he will work through all of that to bake a wonderfully smelling uh, and tasting cake. He'll put the right amount of temperature to it. He'll bake it for just the right amount of time and, and do it in just the right way, and it'll come out with something that's really good. And that's what God, God is promising here. He's promising that not all the ingredients in your life will be attractive. What God is promising is that his ability to take all those ingredients, blend them together just right, and the end result will be something good. All right, so in that light, Romans 8.28 is not a promise about perfect beginnings. 
It is a promise about perfect ending. Did you follow that? There's going to be some struggle on the way through to get into the perfect ending. But God says that's where this is leading. And so God's promising us that he will override all circumstances, even the most terrible events in our life, and that he will convert them into a blessing. You got that? You got that? Okay. All right, heads or nod. Verse, uh, uh, number four. A fourth part of this verse. We got 828? Yes, we do. A uh, fourth part of this verse. Well, who causes this to work out this way? The verse says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Friends, we don't end up on top with a blessing in our life because of blind luck, right? We don't end up with, with blessings in our life and a tasty cake at the end because of the power of positive thinking or because we were clever or because we manipulated circumstances. That's not why that happens. It is because the intervention of the sovereign God of the universe. That's why all of these ingredients blended together, mixed together, baked all the way through, end up being something that's a blessing. It's, because, it's not, um, this, and so the second greatest promise here is because it's made by the massive creator and sustainer of the universe, God himself. That's what makes it such a great promise. Fifth thing about this promise that I'm observing here is how about the certainty of the promise? Uh, if you look at the front end of that verse, it says, and we know. That word no, there's two, two words in the Greek that mean no. One of them is the word gnosko, and gnosko is that you know something by experience. For example, you opened up a lid of something and the hot steam came out and scorched your finger, and you know that steam can burn you because of experience, right? And that's gnosko knowing. That's knowing something because of experience. There's another word in the Greek that means no, to know something, that is a, have certainty about it, and this is the word oida. Oida is not necessarily, and that's the word that's used here uh, for no. Oida is not something that you necessarily experience, but it's something that you are certain of, that you are utterly sure of, and that is the word here. See, friends, God wants us to know, to be oida, for certain, that this promise of God is good. He wants us to be absolutely positive, no doubt about it, sure, that God will work through all things. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It doesn't, and no matter how impossible the odds may be, what God, God said, what is impossible with man it's possible with God. God can do anything. He keep, he's going to keep his promise to you and me. We can know it. All right, so let me summarize what we've talked about. Uh, look at our verse. And we can know for certain that in all things, that's the full extent of it, all things, all good, bad, the ugly, all the ingredients of our life, that God, the most powerful person in the universe, right, works, for the good, works through all things for the good of those who love him, and so the result of this is going to be good. It's going to be a blessing in your life who have been called. And the called are the Christians, the believers. That's who this promise is for, which means this is your promise, which means this is my promise. This is God's promise to us. All right. So with that, that's our treatment of this text for today, this second greatest promise that really kind of covers all the rest of the promises that God made, that God's going to work through all things. And so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question. You know what that is? We ask it around here every week. What difference? Y'all doing okay today? Am I boring you? That happens. I, I'm, not, I'm used to it. But in any case, what, uh, what difference does all this make to my life? Well, that's a really good question. Let's talk about it. You know, I was thinking this week about how God has done exactly what that verse says, that God has fulfilled that promise in the lives of many of the biblical 
characters. For example, you may be familiar with the story of Joseph. Joseph was a guy, his dad had given him this coat of many colors, and it was a really pretty coat, and Joseph was pretty arrogant about it in front of his older brothers, and his older brothers being angry at him threw him in a well and then decided to sell him into slavery. He was sold into slavery, and then he ended up at Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife lied on him, and he ended up getting thrown into jail, and then the Pharaoh's butler came down to jail, and he helped Pharaoh's butler out a little bit, and he got out of jail, and uh, it was crazy because uh, Joseph ends up, from the time he's 17 years of age until he's 30 years of age, Joseph spends behind bars. 17 years until 30 years of age, he spends behind bars. You would think that this guy is feeling pretty hopeless about ever being able to get out of jail again. Um, and, but then you know, some circumstances happen where the butler remembers Joseph, how he could interpret dreams. He's brought before Pharaoh. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. And before you knew it, Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt. He becomes the second most powerful person next to Pharaoh himself in all of the world. I mean, Egypt was the most powerful nation on the planet, and Joseph goes from jail behind bars to being the second most powerful man in all of the world. A pretty remarkable outcome. And so Joseph's brothers end up coming to Egypt looking for food because of a famine where they live, and Joseph um, helps them out. But while they're there, they discover that this is Joseph, their older brother. They realize that this is him, and they're scared to death, and he says to them, and they're afraid that Joseph is going to kill him. But Joseph has a very different perspective of the circumstances that have taken place in his life. Listen to what he says, Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. He says to his brothers, don't be afraid. You intended to harm me. I know y'all were upset with me. I know y'all were angry at me. I was an arrogant little cuss back in the day, and y'all did some things, and it was not nice, and some bad things happened in my life. He says, but hey, look, God overruled your anger. God meant what happened to me for, and turned it into good. How about the Apostle Paul? Over in Acts chapter 31, he's thrown into jail, in a Roman jail. Uh, they had shipped him off to Rome to stand before a trial before the emperor. He had appealed to Emperor Nero at the time. And so he had his waiting his trial before Nero. On his way to go to that trial, he's shipwrecked. And the next thing you know, he gets bit by a bunch of nasty snakes. And then he's ends up, he ends up at, finally at jail. And he spends a year in jail in Rome. And it looked like God had completely forgotten about the Apostle Paul. But that was not the Apostle Paul's perspective of the events of his life, of all these bad ingredients that had come together. Listen to what Paul says, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers. So he's writing from jail in Rome, awaiting his trial before Nero Caesar. He's writing to one of the churches that he had planted in a town called Philippi. And so he says to them, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, all the jail, all the shipwreck, the nasty snakes, me being behind bars, has actually served, he says, to advance the gospel. And he says in the next verse, verse 13, as a result, here's how it advanced the gospel specifics, all this bad stuff, I have been able to share Christ with the whole Praetorian guard. He didn't say just a couple of guys, he said the whole Praetorian guard. Because see, here's how this works. The Praetorian guard were the guy, or the palace guard, were the guys that guarded the palace. And this was the most elite group of people. They guarded the, the Caesar himself in the, in, the temp, in the palace complex. And so anybody that was waiting trial uh, to go see Caesar would have been uh, under, would have been guarded by these Praetorian guard, by this palace guard. And so he's, in, he's waiting trial for a year. He's in jail for a year with every day Praetorian guards coming to guard him. Can you imagine for eight hours a day on your eight-hour shift being chained to the Apostle Paul? Maybe that didn't hit you. Can you imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul for eight hours a day? 
one shift, the next shift, the night shift, and then the next day, and the next week, and the next month, and three and four months in. How many times do you think these guys heard the gospel, right? With the Apostle Paul, he finally just, I mean, he finally, they were, many of these guys came to Christ, he says. <clears throat> and so Paul says a bunch of them came to Christ. And then at the end of the letter, it gets even better. So again, this is Paul's view of his circumstances. It's like all these bad ingredients coming together, but look at the wonderful things God's doing. He says, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 21, he says, greet all the saints in Christ. So he's referring back to the folks in Philippi. He says, greet all the saints in Christ, the brothers who are with me. See, because all these guard have come to Christ. The brothers who are with me send greetings to you as well. Verse 22, and it gets better. All the saints here, all these new believers here, send you back in Philippi greetings, especially those who belong to, get this, Caesar's household. Friends, Caesar's household were Caesar's family. Some of Paul had an opportunity to share Christ with Caesar's own family as a result of being in chains in the palace. How would that ever have happened had not these bad ingredients been thrown into Paul's life? The shipwreck, the chains, the trial. Friends, did God keep his promise to the Apostle Paul? You bet he did. All right, well, let's conclude. When it comes to this promise and God's promises and God promises us that we know with for certainty, that in all things, God works it out for the good of those who love him. And when it comes to that promise, God wants us to know that that promise is unchangeable, that that promise is as good as money in the bank. You say, Gordon, wait a minute, I got one more question. Okay, fire away. Here's my question. How can I know, though, how can I be that kind of certain that God will keep his promise? Because I'm looking around at the canola oil and the flour and the ingredients that have got going on in my life, and they're not tasting too good right now. And i got stuff going on in my life, and I know that some of you are here this morning, and, and you got heavy hearts this morning. you got things that are weighing on your mind, things that are going on in your family, things that are going on at work, things that are going on in your own heart. And you say, you know what, that cake isn't smelling too good right now. I mean, I'm not smelling that sweet aroma coming out of the oven. I know it's on the way. I'm trusting the Lord that it's on the way. But how can I know for certain that God's really going to do what he promised that he would do? How do I encourage myself when the promise of God is half-baked? Well, God's given us another verse in the Bible that is that sweet aroma coming out of the oven. And it comes to us from Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2 says these words. God who does not lie. God does not lie. You smell that? That's the sweet aroma, friends. That's, that's the thing that seals the deal that's coming out of the oven that we can just go, God does not lie. When God makes us a promise, friends, we know that he's going to follow through. Let me urge you this morning, don't evaluate the cake in the oven that's half-baked. <laughs> you have no idea what's coming down the line. You have no idea where things are going to be a year from now or three years from now. What you do know is that God works through all things 
for the good of those who love him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know that we've got stuff in our lives that sometimes we wonder, why did you send this my way? Why am I working through this? Why am I seeing suffering in my family, in my workplace, in my neighbor? Why is this happening? And Lord, you remind us this morning that we're looking at the cake half-baked. May our trust in you reside in knowing who you are, that you are the God who always tells the truth, or that the promises that you make us are ones that we can take to the bank. And so, Lord, if there's some discouragement in our heart this morning, if there's some doubt that's creeping in about what you're up to and about what the end of this story is going to look like, encourage our hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, during this time of communion, as we gather around this table, we recognize that sometimes in your will, there is suffering that's required in order for new life to be resurrected. Lord Jesus, we thank you for going to the cross, for being willing to submit yourself to the Father's will. Lord, the cross was just a cake half-baked. It was the raw ingredients that you would bring together so that the Lord Jesus would three days later rise from the grave and that hope would be renewed and reborn. Lord, may that same hope be born in our hearts this morning. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.